An interesting idea, animals that can talk to humans, but can the author pull it off convincingly? I'm Roger and this is Bookshook and today's podcast is all about the first half of May's book, The Animals in That Country by Laura Jean McKay, published in 2020. So the idea of the podcast is that we'll spend a month reading a book, hopefully together. I'll split the book into two equal halves. On the second Friday of the month, I'll share my thoughts and yours, hopefully, on the first half of the book, maybe make a few predictions. And when we have finished reading the book, I'll publish part two of the podcast in a similar vein. That'll be on the last Friday of the month, the 27th of May. We'll decide whether it's a book we'd recommend to a friend or not. Of course, you don't have to read anything at all. If you're into Audible, then you can listen to the book. Or you can do neither, of course, and just join me for the ride. I'll be summarising what happens in the book just for you but be aware there may be spoilers you can leave a comment or start a conversation at the bookshook youtube channel or send an email to bookshook at yahoo.com maybe you have thoughts you want to express about the book that i've missed or there's something you agree or really disagree with i'd love to share your experiences in the next episode if you enjoy the podcast i'd really appreciate it if you could leave a review so that others will be able to find it thanks and welcome to bookshook So I've read up to page 140, which starts, I need a rinse under the tap and a lie down. So we're introduced to Jean Bennett. She's a tour guide at a wildlife park. She's got a lovely patter. Quote, look to your left there and you'll see a little house in the bush. See those twigs? Blue plastic. Bowerbird made that to attract his sweetheart. Thinking of getting him to do up my place. It reminds me of the casual, inoffensive humour at so many zoos that you go to. She tunes into the radio and there is news of a flu virus down south that won't respond to antibiotics. And she sneakily takes a swig of alcohol, so she's an alcoholic, from a hip flask. She must be in her 50s, I'm guessing. She sees a girl in the crowd who, quote, might be my granddaughter in a couple of years. She gets bitten when she notices her favourite dingo, Sue, get trapped by the wires of the enclosure and she rescues her. She's told off by Ange, who's the park manager, and her daughter-in-law for anthropomorphising. Ange says, quote, I hear you've been doing the voices again, she continues. You know what it says in the manual? It says people who anthropomorphise tend not to read cues and people who don't read cues are dangerous. Dangerous to themselves, dangerous to the animals and dangerous to visitors. I don't want danger here. I don't want to hear that you've been putting everyone and everything at risk. So she's told. I think we'll be looking at that quote again soon because the whole book is her anthropomorphising animals. Jean is applying for a ranger job. Rangers, you see, are trained to be in contact with the animals, whereas she is just a park attendant, really. She's not really allowed to handle the animals. Quote, and this is Jean talking. Hey, Ange, I was wondering about my application for the ranger job. You said, and she's interrupted, really, Jean, really? And Jean ducks out. She says to herself, rather get bitten by sweet Sue than face Angela some days. Remember, Sue is the dingo that she's befriended. Well, Sue bit her, but she's looking after her. To me, that's a little bit hammy, that whole desperately trying to become a ranger and being told, no, you can't do it. Anyway, she overhears the rangers talking about her. Quote, and this is one of the rangers talking. What's wrong with it, though? I don't see why the guys can't do animal work if they want it. That's Casey, new girl, real sweetheart. Remember, these are Jean's thoughts. It's a first-person narration. A laugh, Louis, Vanessa. 
They're not, you'll learn. They're unqualified. Jean can't even get her Cert 3 captive animals. Angela only keeps her on because she looks after Kimberly. She's a grandma, not a ranger. That's her told. Again, it's a bit hammy and contrived. Ange drops off her granddaughter Kimberly with Jean so that she can go out. And as she leaves, Jean says, quote, Sorry about today, Ange. She shrugs. But I want you to know I put in a good work on my application for Ranger. I typed it up and got Andy to check it. If I could be a Ranger, she's interrupted, I'll look at it next week. It's just that the others are saying you keep me on because of Kimberly. But that can't be right, can it? I've got skills. She gives me a look. You might offer a kicked dog putting her in her place so there's this kind of strange power dynamic Ange needs Jean because of Kimberly and Jean needs Ange because she's desperate to be a ranger it's a bit of a trope that she's a drunkard as well not sure what it's adding to the story but maybe things will change Jean shares a what I want moment with Kimberly that will define the thrust of the novel quote and this is Jean talking. Your mum's going to give me a better job as a ranger so I can work with animals all the time. Then I'll save more money and one day, when you're old enough to run it with me, I'll quit and we'll open the sanctuary. She keeps an unlicensed gun in the fridge in case one of her favourite animals gets into trouble. And I'm thinking, that is very irresponsible. What if Kimberly, who's only six, got to it? So part of this flu pandemic that's happening in the South is that people are able to hear what animals are saying and animal keepers over the south are setting their animals free. Jean and another guide manager called Andy have sex. So far it feels like a children's story but with booze and bad language in it. The park is abandoned and Kim and Jean go around attending to the animals and the electricity to the park gets cut. The flu means that not only can you hear what animals are saying but they can hear what humans are saying too. How highly improbable is this? Jean is a horrible character all round. She calls her mother a snake, which isn't very nice. There are southern tourists infected by the disease who are living outside the park now. They want to get in. I think that I'm basically not enjoying the book so far because the main protagonist, Jean, doesn't really describe the other characters in a particularly interesting and poetic way. She's too insular and self-absorbed. But just as I'm thinking this, we do get the description of her son, Lee, which turns everything around, I think. Have a listen to this. Quote, He's been a free boy like that since he was born. How something so pretty could come out of two ageing rev heads like me and Graham with scraps for hearts. I passed Lee to his dad and Graham said, Why doesn't he look like me? I heard he looked like me. It hurt to laugh. Did you think Lee looked like the farmer next door? It's true, though. Lee doesn't look like anyone. He's got Graham's hair and is black as a burrow eyes. He's narrow like I used to be, but the look he wears about himself, the air that comes with him into a room, the light in his eyes that isn't from anything but his own insides, that's free. What's it like to be free? Ask him. He'll say things like, as a bird, or freedom is something you can touch but never hold. He's always talking like he's invented inspirational postcards. I guess when you don't have steady love and you don't look after your children and you don't have a house or a job, even keeping a date with a woman is a bit too hard. You can act free. Lee doesn't mind. Lee doesn't mind about anything. He lights up a room. He could light up a coal mine. He even made Angela happy for a second. We helped them to buy the camper van. They were going to have Kimberley and take off across the desert to the coast. Ange grew up overseas with buckets of money but real strict boarding schools. 
the lot. She saw Lee's bare feet and smelled his particular scent, sun, sweat, lemon juice and smoke. And she reached out for freedom, for that weird beauty that's worth more than money or guts, even in this part of the world. They were supposed to be having a break when they got pregnant, but Lee didn't mind. He said, have the baby and we'll leave at the beach and rent a house from a friend and I'll get work in the kitchen. He didn't add that. Not long after Kimberly was born, he'd take off without either of them. It's actually quite an impressive character study, I think. So Lee, her son, Kimberly's father, makes an appearance at the park and Jean lets him stay with her. It transpires the glasses Lee was wearing was to hide the pink eye that he has. He's infected and can hear the thoughts of furry animals. Quote, I heard some people have bad cases, talking to the birds, the insects, reptiles even. All the zoo workers get the vibe that the animals think the zoo workers want to kill them. And I'm thinking, will the ironic twist be that Jean, although she pretends to speak with animals, never will, and will perhaps rely on Kimberly to do the listening? Doesn't really turn out that way. I'm wrong in my prediction. She begins to hear animals speak and stumbles into Dingo Sue. Quote, She isn't talking through her mouth or her mind, but like the mice and the things in the trees, through her whole damned body, upright and narrow, very proper in her way. Her voice isn't made of words either. She's speaking odours, echoes, noises with random meanings popping out of them. A twitching rear paw, creaking sounds of welcome in her throat that don't say what they should say. No hello or hi, no formal greetings. It's my front end, takes the food, quality, muzzle, for the queen, yesterday. You get the idea of how the dialogue of the animals is articulated in the book. Ange also contracts the disease and she gets mauled by Bernie, the crocodile, because it told her he wanted to, quote, play with her. The animals think the humans glitter because of their sweat. And Lee, Kimberly's father, describes how the free animals are communicating. Quote, There's other animals, isn't there? Mammals that aren't domestic and they're not in jail. They're wild and free. They're singing, refrains, repetitions, notes you can't hardly hear, deafening choruses, songs so sad and so happy those words don't even begin. He's keen to, quote, commune with the whales and takes Kimberly away with him to the coast. Jean is beside herself. She goes to Ange's. Kim's obviously not there. Ange reveals that Lee is not the father of Kim. Therefore, Jean is not Kim's grandmother. What a plot twist. Jean is of the opinion that Kim has been stolen, not rescued from this dangerous place where people are getting mauled or rescued from an alcoholic grandmother, rather than legitimately taken away for safety by her father. But now that the question mark over paternity has been dropped into the story, are we as the reader supposed to be siding with Jean? Personally, I think Kim is far better off away and with her daddy. It might transpire, however, that Kim has been squirreled away by Ange. Possible another plot twist there. Jean gives Sue a blue sock of Kimberly's and Sue says south. Remember, Sue is an animal, a dingo. Is this animal going to be instigating a road trip search? Well, yes, that's what happens. Jean has gone insane. She's thinking of sending her dying mother to the park too. Listen to this. Quote, Here's a plan for you. We check in on mum, arrange to send her up to the park where Ange or someone can take care of her. Then we get back to looking for Kim. All these maulings that have been happening and you want to send your dying mother there, do you? Right. <sighs> anyway, they've been driving for miles and Jean still thinks her dingo might be able to track Kim. 
I mean, animals can smell well, but surely they can't smell over huge distances. Jean says, can you still smell Kim? And Sue the dingo replies with South. Any more detail on that? (laughs) Jean stops by a truckload of pigs and rescues them. Quote, you've seen it in Lee and I've had it too at times. These pigs are half dead. They're stumbling around, blind, mad and hopeful. She then stops at a service station. The attendant thinks the disease is a government scheme to program their citizens. She's a conspiracy theorist. Jean meets a horse outside who leads her to believe her wild goose chase for Kim is not in vain. And then the first part ends. So the questions that I've got are, will Jean find Kim? And I think that the answer will be yes. Will Kim be safe? Yes, she's with her father. The father will look after her. Will Ange survive? Probably not. She's been painted as a liar and generally not a nice person. Will the animals take over the world? Yes, probably. Will Jean become a ranger? She doesn't need this to happen because she's already a ranger. And she can now actually talk to the animals. Will the pandemic make the world a better place? Yes, I reckon there will be a nice agreement between the animals and the humans. This must be wishful thinking, surely. And is Kim somewhere else, not with her father? I think there's going to be a plot twist. I don't think Angela's got her, but I think someone else might have her. So there were some ideas that cropped up. We have alcohol. Personally, I think it's just tacked on a little bit. Right at the start of the book, Jean says, quote, The tourists are bent over the rail like they're at the greatest event on this earth. They're looking at the dingoes. A row of sweat cracks. I take my moment, pull out the hip flask from my paper bag and have a nip. Just enough to coat my tongue. Then I get on the mic. We don't really have many repercussions or consequences to the alcoholism. I think that it could have been removed and it would be exactly the same story. I might be wrong. What do you think? We've got this interesting idea about anthropomorphising animals being bad for them. Remember Ange saying, quote, you know what it says in the manual? It says people who anthropomorphise tend not to read cues and people who don't read cues are dangerous. Dangerous to themselves, dangerous to the animals and dangerous to visitors. I don't want danger here. I don't want to hear that you've been putting everyone and everything at risk. The whole book is anthropomorphising animals. I like the idea that certificates are not as good as actual experience. And does say, quote, There are procedures in place, Gene. Rangers work with the animals. You're a guide. You haven't got your certificates and you're not trained to handle them. And remember, Kimberly says, quote, Are you a ranger now, Granny? Guess I am, replies Gene. We both are. We're in charge of all the dogs, the rays, and now it seems like people can talk to them for real. So she thinks she's a ranger through her experience. We've got the city as a negative place. When Jean talks of Andy's boyfriend, she says, quote, Even Andy is getting his feet dirty in the Wallaroo section, scattering feed with one hand and arguing with this fellow on the phone with the other, saying how he can't come home, he's got a job to do. That young guy must be spitting chips in the city, not so keen on Andy being Crocodile Dundee now. Here's another quote by Jean. Quote, The dingo family prances along the fence. They're used to being fed through this gate by a young woman who's probably back in the city. Now it's me and Kim out the front in our ranger shirts. We've also got the idea that the park is a place of death. She calls it death row, this gas chamber. 
Quote, you'd never know if you were a tourist, but there's pretty much a second zoo's worth of animals kept behind the food store, out of the public eye. It's more like death row. All those furry, feathered and scaly inmates waiting for their fate. Too many rock rats. People find them in their houses or half splattered on the road and bring them in. If it's rare or an uninjured baby, it might make it out of death row alive to be put on an exhibition. If it's common as muck, we ask around the other zoos to see if it's wanted. If it's too sick or old and broken and not good enough to show, we put it down in the little gas chamber. Sounds bad, but it's just the business. Costs a lot to keep the mob loads of wallabies, pythons, ducks and lizards people bring in every other day. That's not all. We breed mice as livestock too. In the rooms just off the food store, lab mice. They live a funny life of breeding and dying so we can feed the birds of prey and the snakes. At least they live and die for something. So ironic. And when talking of the mice, she says, quote, We open the cages, give them their pellets and scraps. The mums and dads and babies, the teenagers who always look like they've had their heads in the water dish. Most of them will be gas soon, fed to our show creatures. Their beady red eyes take us in when we put more straw in their cages. Their white whiskers twitch like the clappers. We also have some quite corny writing in places, I think. There's this section where she's it just reminds me of the Lord of the Rings. Listen to this. She says, quote, I see what Angela saw in the eagle's talon. Everything that's past, everything that's happening, and all the things to come at the same time. I see my mistake. And she says things like, I fight back stupid tears, which is such a cliche. And we've talked about already the insanity of like a dingo that can smell where Kim is. Can you still smell Kim? And she just says, South. Another interesting idea is the idea that the virus is generated for the betterment of, in this case, society. I read a book called Oryx and Crake by Margaret Atwood, where the virus was generated for the betterment of pharmaceutical companies so that they could develop antidotes that they could sell. When she's at the service station, we've got this quote. Have a listen to this. Quote, the newspapers are only a day old, though. Front page all about the race for a zoo flu cure. Seems they gave a whole bunch of mice a food like ours. But when it came to blitzing it with strong antibiotics, the little creatures kept telling those scientists where it hurt. Personally, I don't think they're after a cure at all, the woman says. She snooped up beside me to poke at the paper. They like everyone in a state of emergency, easier to manage. That's why we're all taking to desperate measures. So interesting, that conspiracy idea that it's generated by society. What ideas did you bring to the novel? I would love to hear them. Please email me at bookshook at yahoo.com. I'd now like to share some of your thoughts on last month's book, For Whom the Bell Tolls by Ernest Hemingway. There were some wonderful comments on the web and some great comments on Goodreads. Jay on Goodreads said, quote, Hemingway is an acquired taste. Reading his works is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. I like the taste of this one, although I was sceptical for the first 400 pages. For me, the best part of the book came in the last 70 pages and took forever to come, and I was richly rewarded. The result was satisfying. And Scott's review on Goodreads held some wonderful thoughts. A wonderful tonic, really, to our Talking Animals book. He said, quote, The writer Hemingway was a bearded bulk of a man, his carousing had earned him a reputation. He drank hard and worked harder, penning stories filled with drinkers, bullfighters, soldiers and simple words. He sometimes wrote in short sentences, sometimes quite short, sometimes very, sometimes. 
His style was distinctive. It was often parodied, sometimes in book reviews. He shot elephants for sport, he murdered lions, he fished marlins, he watched Andalusian bulls die slow deaths while Spaniards danced around them. This made him look strong and feel strong, a macho man in a world of the same. Posterity has not been kind to manliness of this sort. His book, however, has remained strong. For whom the bell tolls of binding has weathered many summers, the hot Spanish sun etching lines into its covers, but it still has much vigour. It is spry and tough and bristles with sharp sentences that flash in the afternoon light. The book still takes all challenges, holding court in its sun-baked piazza, its old haunches disguising a muscular story that is a match for any young pretender. This is a story of life and love and death. In the book, a young American fights. He fights a vicious war with good people for a doomed cause in a beautiful country. He fights for a bright, true idea, knowing they will never see it realised, fighting all the harder in that knowledge. The young man meets a young woman, a fellow warrior. She is scarred by the war, her family left motionless at the foot of a pockmarked wall, whose surface has been so shaped by fascist bullets. They find something together, peace in the midst of carnage, and both must confront what their duty will mean for their new love. Through it all, vibrant, tortured, politically riven Spain looms in the background, a nation at a crossroads, a place so clearly dear to the writer's heart. There is beauty here in this novel. There are sentences so crisp and clear that you can see the trout sparkling in them as they head upstream. But it is a harsh beauty. For Whom the Bell Tolls is one of the greatest novels of the 20th century, but this is no feel-good story. The writer saw Spain die, prostrate under the boot of fascism. He knew there were no happy endings there. It is a foolish reader who approaches this work expecting cheer in its final pages. Among the writer's many strengths was bravery in his work. Hemingway never turned the wheel of his stories when a reef was sighted at journey's end. He clung to the helm while his grateful readers' hearts were torn and broken on the rocks. Thank you so much for letting me share those thoughts of yours, Scott and Jay. Thanks very much for listening. If you have any questions or comments, I'd love to hear them. Email bookshook at yahoo.com or leave a comment at the Bookshook YouTube channel. I'd also love suggestions for future books to read together. Maybe there's been one sitting on your shelf for ages which you haven't got round to reading and you just need that push to get started. Talking of next books, after I publish part two of The Animals in That Country... Next month's podcast will be all about, so get that one ready if you can. Anyway, I look forward to discussing the final part of the animals in that country on the 27th of May. See you then. Mm -hmm.